You're listening to the Prometheus Unbound Podcast, Episode 2, Libertarian Speculative Fiction. This podcast is the audio counterpart of the Prometheus Unbound webzine, a libertarian review of speculative fiction and literature featuring news, reviews, and more. And we are your hosts, Jeffrey Allen Ploche and Matthew Alexander. We are libertarians talking about speculative fiction. I'm the editor of Prometheus Unbound, an independent scholar and political philosopher, and a freelance writer, editor, educator, and web designer. And I'm the primal leading Spanish-speaking, soccer-watching, heterodox author of libertarian science fiction novel, Witherweed. So, Matthew, what have you been up to since the last episode? Well, I started reading a book called Marsbound uh, by Haldeman, famous science fiction author. He was the guy who wrote uh, Forever War. I think that was his first novel, and I reviewed Forever Peace for Prometheus Unbound uh, a while, maybe a year ago or so, and I started reading Marsbound, which is the first in, I believe, a trilogy. Are you liking it so far? I'm enjoying it. It does not score as well on the Amazon reviews. I'm only about a third of the way through, but it's it's standard Haldeman, as I'm coming to discover. It, Get you right into the action, not a whole lot of extra verbiage. Uh, the story starts, character introduction, off we go, just enough description to get you into the story. Again, I'm finding the emotional part to be a little flat. I had this, I didn't, I don't remember having that problem with the Forever War, but in Forever Peace, characters would suddenly do things suggesting a, a very powerful emotional state, but it would hit you all of a sudden because right up until that point, he was just mechanically describing their physical motions. You know, there was no, and even though it's first person narrating, there's no real insight into how the characters are feeling at any given moment. So in Forever Peace, for instance, a character will suddenly try to commit suicide and you just had no idea that's the state of mind they were in. And I've run into that already in, in Marsbound, where a character, the main character, gets up from the table and leaves in tears. But depending on how you kind of chose to hear the dialogue in your head, there wasn't necessarily anything that intense going on. So I think he shortchanges the emotional aspect of his characters. That would be my main criticism of him. But... Uh, the stories are interesting, and they flow smoothly, and they're pretty much a pleasure to read. That's a weird shortcoming for a first-person uh, narrative. I mean, you expect to see more um, of a deeper look into the psychology of the character. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, especially for first-person, like you said. Mm-hmm. It's it's very strange. But, uh, yeah, yeah you, some sometimes things just kind of jump out and hit you. Maybe other people don't have the same experience, but that's mm. that's how I felt. But mm. still enjoyable. There's not much new on my end. Uh, I'm still reading um, Robert Heinlein's The Man Who Sold the Moon. It's a short story collection. The longest piece in there is a novella. with you know, It's a title story, The Man Who Sold the Moon. And there's some other short stories as well, included before and after it. Mm. In the title story, the, character, the main character has this dream that he, uh, that he, wants, to, um, he wants to make it to the moon and you know, set foot on the moon. And uh, so this character, uh, Dee Dee Harriman, has to uh, take matters into his own hands if he wants to make us uh, you know, sit foot on the moon himself. And so he's this uh, private businessman and he um, 
does a lot of scheming and um, you know secret business plans and uh, and stuff to you know to to sell the moon to the to the to the world uh, to sell the idea to sell the idea of um, the desirability of going to the moon to them. Interesting. Uh, so when does yeah. the story take place? In what decade does it say? Um, I can't remember. It's been I've read it a while back and uh, I haven't gotten to it yet in my reread. But it was um, in the future from his point of view. Uh, I believe so. It? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, let's see the, the some of the other short stories uh, like there's um, Lifeline, Let There Be Light, and The Rose Must Roll. The ones I'm going through now, and they're all pretty much um, universally like anti-establishment, uh, anti-corporatist, um, you know that sort of thing. So it's uh, you can you can see um, Heinlein's. Uh, um, kind of libertarian streak uh, even way back in the 40s and 50s when he's writing these short stories yeah and then the other book um, I'm going to start reading this one soon is the new uh, serialized novel by John Scalzi uh, this could be coming out in 13 episodes I think the first two are out now okay. you can get those on Kindle and Google Play Store and, and, and Audible and everything I like uh, John Scalzi's Old Man's War it's kind of a Heinlein-esque kind of military science fiction yeah they say um, mm-hmm. I always hear uh Old Man's mm-hmm. War, Forever War, and Starship Troopers are like the triumvirate of hardcore military sci-fi. Those are the three people tend to talk about when they discuss the subject. I haven't read yeah. Old Man's War. But. Yeah, I liked all three. And Old Man's War is kind of an interesting take on it. It's kind of like a homage to Heinlein, but the main characters are elderly people who take a deal to uh, be put into young bodies and fight against aliens in the galaxy. Uh, with a promise of if they survive, they can uh, go live on some uh, new colony. Yeah. Great <laughs> so premise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this new uh, serialized novel by Scalise is called The Human Division is, I think, the fourth or fifth book in the in the Old Man's War series. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I need to actually go back and read the other ones in between, too, but um, I'm looking forward to reading this one. All right, sounds good. Yep. I think this, uh, the mention of Heinlein is probably, uh, probably a good segue to get into our uh, theme discussion for the episode which is libertarian speculative fiction. I think we tend to find more libertarian themes and elements in science fiction than fantasy fiction. Uh, I don't know about you. Have you you noticed that too? Oh, absolutely. I grew up reading almost exclusively fantasy fiction. And boy, I, I wasn't a libertarian at the time, but I don't remember running into anything that strikes me as particularly libertarian. There might've been something, Mm -hmm. but libertarianism is alive and well in science fiction, no doubt about that. Yeah, I think the problem in fantasy might be the uh, tendency to focus on the like medieval era types of, uh, of you know, political systems. Yeah. And so people tend to you know, focus on monarchies. And when there's a revolution, it's usually to overthrow a tyrant in order to restore a monarchy. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not to, not to uh, you don't see very many stories where they actually try to um, overthrow a monarchy or a despotism. Uh, in order to institute democratic government or even anarchy or something. so Which is a little yeah. strange because when you look at what fantasy is usually patterned off of, it's typically medieval Europe with a whole bunch of mm-hmm. extra flourishes. There's a lot there for libertarians to write on. When you look at the Hanseatic League and a lot of the private courts they had and a lot of the people mm-hmm. who lived without a state back then, it seems to me there's a lot of fertile territory there to start plowing and, and make some good literature, but it seems to be mainly uh, science fiction. I've heard good kind is objectivist, but, yeah, but after that, which is yeah. not 
which is not necessarily <laughs> libertarian, but uh, <laughs> after you get past good kind, I don't mm -hmm. know. Are you aware of any any authors you would describe as libertarian who write in the fantasy genre? Uh, I haven't read any of their work, but I think Stephen Molyneux and David Friedman have written some fantasy fiction. That's true. For, I didn't but, know Molyneux had. Friedman, I had heard of. Yeah, Molyneux has one book out, but I'm not sure if it's fantasy or something else. I don't know. But I haven't read either one of them. Good kind. He's an objectivist, and he's not really even a very good one, in my opinion. I mean, he's he didn't understand objectivism as well as he thinks. He has some of their unfortunate tendencies when it comes to foreign policy. Um, yeah, the main character there ends up becoming kind of more of an autocratic type of war leader yeah. in order to fight some evil. So I wouldn't say that's very libertarian, really. Um, the main example that comes to mind for somebody overthrowing a monarchy or tyranny and, and replacing it with something other than another monarchy would be um, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series where they, they actually try to institute a uh, democratic government, but then that kind of gets undermined by the need to fight a great evil, too. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and depending on yeah. how in agreement you are with Hoppe, you may think that's a step mm -hmm. back <laughs> going yeah, from monarchy. True, true. But yeah, At I, least it would be a change. I have no opinion you know? myself. Mm -hmm. I guess Friedman's yeah. work uh, is loosely based on Iceland back mm -hmm. when they were quasi-stateless. It sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think probably a lot of fantasy fiction writers have not done enough research into medieval history to see what outside of the the, the monarchical government itself you know what society was like uh, and how the, what these other institutions were they were very important to those cultures and also i think they might despite often being kind of medieval style settings i think they might take after the uh, more of a renaissance level where you have the absolute monarchies centuries after the medieval period the monarchies in in the fantasy books seem more like absolute monarchies from several hundred years after the medieval period yeah Libertarian authors seem to gravitate towards science fiction more, and we seem to see more libertarian themes, I guess because it's not as you know, nostalgic and backwards-looking, and you can experiment more with political and governmental forms and issues. I think that, that might be it. it. It does seem, and then the whole technological element, too, along with being forward-looking, it just fits in mm -hmm. well with that. It all men melds together pretty well, I think. What, uh, what for you, makes a work libertarian at what point are you willing to call something libertarian oh that's a tough one <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it was one of those like supreme court things where you know it when you see it like you know pornography when you see it <laughs> yeah <laughs> doesn't make it's, for it's, a good standard in law but <laughs> yeah it's, it's a tough balance every work is uh unique mm -hmm. you have to read it in context somebody could write uh, about similar issues and the tone might be different and make it sound libertarian whereas another person might have the same you know, so very similar take on things, but yeah. the tone makes fun of liberty uh, you know, and people concerned about liberty. And then it's not libertarian. So yeah. see, for me, issue. yeah, it is kind of tough for me. Libertarianism is is really very narrow. Now, that's not to mm. say it's not complex because it is. But I think it's very narrow. I think Walter Block gave a very good description of what it is. So we believe in property rights and we're concerned with when violence is appropriate. And that, that's that's a very very narrow field there. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I think goes along well with that. For mm -hmm. instance, uh, the topic of racism. Uh, you could, in theory, be a racist and be a libertarian, but they're not really good bedfellows because the whole idea of my rights are the same as your rights, they don't conflict, we exist together as legal equals, really lends itself to opposing racism. So you can get, you could conceivably get works that are anti-racist, 
but one might fall down more in the progressive zone, whereas another one might fall down in something that feels more libertarian too. Yeah, and you might have a more narrow criteria for what makes a book uh, libertarian than I do. I suppose I, I wouldn't. Well, I not, wouldn't try to. I wouldn't try to tease out whether or not the uh, anti-racism in a book is libertarian or progressive. I don't think, unless it was obvious. I was just talking about libertarianism. I wasn't necessarily talking mm-hmm. about whether a work is libertarian. Right. And when it comes to looking at a book, whether some you know themes discussed in a or illustrated in a book are libertarian or not, there's you know, themes like individualism, uh, you know, racism and sexism. They take a, a legal manifestation. That's where the libertarian angle comes in. But even in the absence of that, well, we were reading uh, what was the snuff, right? We were reading right uh, earlier, well, last year, and, by Terry Pratchett. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there was there was it's definitely a book that's against racism. Uh, by way of goblins and trolls and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. which you know, I I wholeheartedly support. That in and of itself is not racist. And then you raise the point, but their legal rights of goblins in this story are very much at issue, and that that definitely is libertarian. Right. This is an example where the uh, racism is uh, applied in the political and legal spheres. And you know, infringes on the rights of uh, the you know minority that's being uh, discriminated against. I would consider that to be uh, kind of a libertarian theme in a novel, although you know, how prominent it is uh, might it it, it would uh, affect how much I would think the novel itself is libertarian because you can have libertarian themes in a novel. I think mm-hmm. without the novel itself being kind of over uh, either overtly or even in general a libertarian novel. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. What would you say? All right, let let's say there's a book whose focus is on reducing the size and scope of government, but is still mm-hmm. status in that it, you know, we, there's market failure in the provision of arbitration and defense. So we need a government, a standard line, but they want to reduce the size and scope of government, something that we wouldn't call full libertarian, but our, our ideas would at least coincide and up to the point where the government was reduced. Would you call that a libertarian book? Um, it depends on how much they want to reduce it. I think uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, if it's just a little bit, uh, then it, there might be some libertarian themes in it. But if it's like, you know, let's reduce it to like a minarchist, you know, night watchman state level. Mm-hmm. In my more big tent uh, libertarian moments, I might consider that libertarian. You know, mm-hmm. but if it's like the Republicans, they would just want to roll back the state by five years. Uh, no, I don't do think that. that's really. <laughs> do that. <laughs> that's what they, in in rhetoric, or, or at least some factions of the Republican you know, Party would. You know, they say they want to. They, they, they'll, they'll say they have this plan to cut back spending to 2005 or whatever, you know, and, and like, but, but that was like, <laughs> that was after like Bush increased the, you know, the, yeah. you know, the budget, you know, tremendously. So it's, it's very, it's the, that's conservative, not libertarian because it's not, you know, it's not principled sure. and it's not, uh, you know, dramatic enough, I think. Then you have the case of books where there's some libertarian themes in them and there's some, you know, some statist, uh, you know, just, you know, evil themes in them, and you got to you know balance the two to see you know, you know how libertarian is this book if it has you know both of these themes running through it. There was an interesting discussion I was reading on Wikipedia on the uh, editorial discussion pages about the page of libertarian fiction, and mm-hmm. and a lot of people were complaining that a lot of the books that were being listed as libertarian fiction didn't have libertarian authors even though there may have been a a liberty theme in them and uh, Mm -hmm. the point a lot of them made was that we unless the author is liberal 
we wouldn't call a book liberal fiction. Unless the author is conservative, we wouldn't call it conservative fiction. But libertarians want to grab all these books that aren't written by libertarian authors to kind of make their library a little bit bigger. I thought that was an interesting point because that uh-huh. does happen a lot. Non-libertarian authors will, well, I mean, they, they're all up and down the uh, awards list mm-hmm. of the uh, Prometheus Award. <laughs> right. I mean, if, we, if we followed that uh, criterion about what, you know, what counts as libertarian uh, fiction, then I think probably a good portion of the Prometheus Award uh, list of winners would probably have to be gutted. The lion so, share. Yeah, yeah, especially in recent years, I think some of the earlier winners, like uh, you know, Janiel Shulman and L. Neal Smith, and some of those are they're libertarian authors, but some of the more recent ones like Cory Doctorow and uh, Ken McLeod, mm-hmm. um, these they're they're not libertarian at all. Uh, Ken McLeod's an uh, anarcho-socialist. And Cory Doctorow is a run-of-the-mill, um, I guess, progressive Democrat, you know, democratic socialist or something. Yeah, he, he's yeah. he's um, okay on, you know, halfway decent on intellectual property and civil liberties, although he's not very, you know, not, not, he's more of a utilitarian uh, kind of mindset on those issues. Um, he still doesn't really, really reject um, copyright and patents in principle, but on everything else, he's terrible. I mean, he's just a, he's a, a social Democrat, progressive. So, yeah, uh, and yet little, little brother, you know, won the Prometheus Award and then um, <laughs> for, for its yeah. admonition against uncareful voting. Right? <laughs> um, uh, well, it, what it won it for, I guess, was that, I mean, I guess there was a weak field during that year. The bulk of the book is about these teenagers resisting a Department of Homeland Security crackdown in their in their town. If I remember correctly, it was San Francisco. I'm not entirely sure. It's been a while since I read it. Uh, and uh, after a terrorist attack or something. And so they're resisting and trying to, you know, retain their freedoms. And um, I think it's one of uh, Dr. O's better books, although he's not the greatest writer in the world. But uh, the problem for me is that it ended in a very conservative, like, not conservative politically, but conservative um, in terms of like, you know. Cautious. He starts off with, yeah, cautious is, yeah. is a better word. Yes, he starts off with this radical premise and then he ends up on a cautious note where <laughs> uh, the main character calls for um, you know, more care and, and more more uh, people to get out and vote and be more careful when they vote to get the right people into power. So like, it's, you know, it's like this is that's it. Dangerous yeah. radicalism. Dangerous you over- radicalism. <laughs> <laughs> you, you kick you kick out the Department of Homeland Security and then you <laughs> want to call for more voting. Be careful uh, on your votes, folks. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a pretty much a pattern in all of Cory Doctorow's novels that I've read so far. And you know, from Makers to um, For the Win. They start off with this radical premise and they kind of fizzle out with this kind of cautious, uh, you know, where he didn't want to take his ideas to their logical conclusions. He just, he, he kind of restrains himself because he can't go there, mm. I guess, because he's, because he's, he's a, you know, basically kind of a mainstream statist, you know. Convictions he can't, without the requisite courage. That's not the only case of, uh, there's numerous um, authors who are not libertarian have won the Prometheus Awards and the Prometheus Awards, there's two uh, issues to consider when, when, I guess, nominating um, and then voting on the winners uh, for that award. You, you know, how libertarian is the book, and uh, how well written is it? Yeah. And I think often, you know, the first uh, the first standard, you know, how libertarian is it, uh, tends to win out over how what how well written it is. Mm-hmm. And so you get books that are kind of mediocre in quality, getting uh, getting the winning the award because they're they're more libertarian than everything else that was published that year. So what what do you yeah. do though if you're handing out the Prometheus Award? You've got such a paucity of things to choose from. I I don't know. What do you do? You just well, limit it to the most libertarian and then pick the best of what's there. Right. Well, what's what's I, the I best strategy? 
I think any any book that's going to win the award should be both well written and uh, authentically libertarian, yeah. at least to an, at least in a big tent sort of way. But the uh, but I think maybe they need to go back to um, what they used to do. Uh, I, I don't think it's been done in a while, but there were a few cases where there was uh, no winner. Mm. You know, there you know, I guess there's none of the above, or something was yeah. selected, and, and so there's no winner that year. And maybe that needs to happen if there's nothing this you know of high enough quality this you know libertarian enough then don't give an award to anybody um yeah that might encourage more people to um write more libertarian works um, more libertarians might come out and try to you know fill in the void or even um, if it doesn't we're not left blushing at you know who won in 1997 or whatever so. <laughs> yeah i mean there are a lot, of, a lot of books i still need to read on that list but i've read enough of them that you know especially in recent years that yeah this seems to be like, uh, the trend of um not very many radical books have won recently, I think. Yeah. And and looking at the nominees, you know, for the past couple of years too. I mean, a lot of them I'm like I'm, you're left wondering why are these even nominated? Yeah, you know, where's the limit? You know, we we read most of the uh, nominees for last year uh, I mean, leading up to the uh, the voting on the award and uh, only one or you know, two of them we could even see reason why they were even nominated in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, just from, just just on the libertarian um uh, you know standard of the of the equation. Although it so sounds like the one we didn't read which one is fairly libertarian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just happened not read the we weren't even interested in the one that was uh, the that that was selected as the winner. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> but um I mean we should have read it. I guess we'll have to read it sometime, but um it is there is an issue that you know. The, I, mean, I guess you can't really help that so much because they, the the nomination process is basically the members of the Libertarian Future Society uh, nominate whatever books they think are libertarian and uh, deserving of recognition, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's you know there's a, sl- a willing down process to get some finalists, and then and then finally some voting, and that's kind of a complicated voting process. It's it's um, you know you vote on like. Um, I think you rank them in order or something of, of your preference, and then you see who, which one gets the most number first place votes, which one gets the most second place votes, that kind of thing. Uh, but it's, it's a complicated process. But uh, it's, so there's probably nothing you can really do about that unless you want to have a you know jury award instead of a, a popular vote award. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. So, what are your favorite works of libertarian fiction? Um. The usual is that most people are probably you know, who are listening to this podcast probably know of you know, some Ayn Rand's novels. Although, uh, as, Steph, as, our, as Stephen Kinsella mentioned in our interview with him in the last episode, uh, once you uh, kind of cross that divide between you know kind of being knee-jerk pro-intellectual property to becoming anti-intellectual property, uh, the Fountainhead starts to look more like a work of IP terrorism, as he said. <laughs> uh, but despite that part of the of the of the story, and there are you know some good themes about individualism. Uh, and in that in that book, uh, beyond beyond Ayn Rand, um, I like your Robert Heinlein's fiction, especially The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress. Yeah, and let's see, um, John C. Wright uh, has this um, trilogy called The Golden Age, and uh, he wrote that before he became a conservative Catholic. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was still somewhat libertarian then. Yeah, yeah, the 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 um, government in that uh, trilogy is a very, 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 very limited government, and it's like a one man army 
in it. So yeah, <laughs> it's very, it's very limited. Um, and, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll talk about more about that trilogy when we get to the today or tomorrow's writing prompt segment because there's something uh, there. There's some um, a kind of a related theme there that I wanted to bring up. Uh, another one, which I'll, um, I'll bring up later uh, in more detail as well, is Alan Steele's Coyote series, especially the first book, um, just titled Coyote. I like uh, 1984. Of course, mm. I I would call that a libertarian novel because it just reveals how awful and manipulative a uh, total state can be. Even though the author was not certainly not a libertarian, but mm. I I would I would qualify 1984 as a libertarian book. Uh, of course, Atlas Shrugged. Everyone, every libertarian has their has their moment with Atlas Shrugged, I think. I think and I think it's a great book despite its flaws. I very much enjoyed yeah. it. Hein Rand was a little weak on character. Uh that's a charitably putting yeah. it. But well, I, it's yeah, a I great think that's story. just a, um, a great I think that character issue is just a you know the style of writing that she used was kind of a more of a Russian yeah. uh, style of writing where they like I think I, I, we talked about this before is that uh, from what I've read, uh the Russian, that kind of Russian style of writing is uh, the characters won't represent more like uh, they're kind of embodiments of ideas and values. Uh, so you don't see, you don't really see much uh, in the way of character development and psych- psychological growth in those in those kind of stories. Don't make excuses uh, so. for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she wrote bad characters. <laughs> but uh, and there's a case to be made that Atlas Shrugged is, if not a science fictional novel, uh, at least has some. It's, science fiction all and it's got some science fiction elements yeah, in it. it has yeah. it has science fiction mm-hmm. elements i i mm-hmm. myself it doesn't meet my threshold for calling a science fiction but the elements are there mm-hmm. science fiction is a lot like film noir where there are elements you look for and there's a lot of films that have elements of film noir without actually being it and i would mm-hmm. say the same is true with science fiction i think atlas shrugged definitely has some elements of science fiction and you know the dystopic angle is something you'll typically see in a lot of science fiction, but it doesn't quite meet my standard for being science fiction. Yeah, and Atlas Shrugged is—I think it tends to be most people's favorite. But for me, I mean, the first time I read it, it was definitely you know very uh, big influence on me, and I loved it. But uh, I've read it a couple, two or three times now, and it, 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 each time it's a little harder to get through because it's so long. Yeah, I never complex. did get through the. 62 page speech mm-hmm. at the end or however long it was. I, I don't think Stefan did either. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read it and I even read it uh, in one of her uh, nonfiction anthology collections where she has a speech because it's such a good condensation of her philosophy. But yeah. <laughs> um, my favorite of Ayn Rand's novels is actually Anthem, which is a novella. Yes, yeah, novella length. Um, it's kind of a, um, it's another dystopian uh, novel similar to Yevgeny Zemiatin's We, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, I mean, you might have you might have a hard time classifying it as science fictional because it's you know low tech, post apocalyptic. Well, not, well, not post apocalyptic, yeah. but post. It's dystopian and and after it's, uh, the, the apocalypse is a fiction. political one. Yeah, I'd call yeah. it science fiction. I think that fits in science fiction. I don't think her other yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah, I like that one because it's it's short and it's very poetic and you know, and and very um, uh, just just very um, I think evocative for me. I don't know, I, I liked it a lot. Another book I'd point out, one I reviewed a while back for our site, is The Shield That Fell from Heaven, which is not a well-known work. It's the first work 
by an author named William Kerr. And I was very pleasantly surprised by it. I thought it was a very well-written book, uh, almost too well-written to have been a modern book, to be honest with you. <laughs> he has a very old feel to his prose, but he, he handles it very well. Uh, I thought it was a very good book. Um, I was in contact with him recently. He's working on a second. It's not a sequel. It's a separate series. I look forward to it coming out. But The Shield That Fell From Heaven, very, very libertarian book. Do you know if the author is libertarian? I, I never did find that out. I would guess from reading it that he is just because of what happens in the book and he, what uh, I, I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to give away spoilers here, but based on what happens in the book, it makes a definite point about the nature of the state. Hmm. That is the type of insight you would expect from Murray Rothbard. So I, I've got to believe that someone who wrote that is not just toying with the idea. He's, you know, I got to believe he's got at least some sympathies uh, along libertarian lines. But uh, I, I not heard him refer to himself as a libertarian. Uh, well, if anybody's interested in reading that book or or your review, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you mentioned. I want to go back a, minute, uh, a little bit. You mentioned earlier about 1984. That's mm. uh, a dystopian work. They didn't really have any overtly libertarian. It's not, um, I guess, and it's not, it's not a positively libertarian book. You're uh, right. Yeah. It's, it's libertarian in the sense that it shows how bad the state is. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and totalitarianism and that sort of thing. So that's another way that a book can be libertarian without actually, you know, it's, it's depicting statism. Yeah. Um, but it's doing it in such a way that it criticizes statism. So that's uh, I'm I'm almost yeah. tempted to say after reading 1984, you can't support the state except that the author who yeah. wrote it supported the state. His mm. my understanding is his position was the state is awful, it's terrible, but what are you going to do? Necessary evil. Necessary huh? evil. Yeah. Yeah. Which I and so we we just need to you know curb the uh, worse uh, tendencies of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think uh, yeah. I think his position was that you're not even going to be able to do that. You're just stuck with mm. it. I, I would love for Mr. Blair to have sat down with Ludwig von Mises for a couple hours. I think he could have straightened about <laughs> on a few things. But nevertheless, I think 1984 is a great book on its own terms. And I would call it libertarian just because of what it does to the state. Mm -hmm. It lays it bare. Yeah. And this, this angle also reminds me of a fantasy series that I liked a lot. This uh, not... A libertarian in that positive sense, but libertarian in the sense of, you know, it's got libertarian elements in it, or at least it's, it's got, uh, it's something that libertarians would uh, really get behind and, and really understand because it shows how, um, how evil the state can be, how evil, you know, war and violence, you know, political violence and all that stuff can be. Um, it's called uh, The First Law Trilogy by Joe Abercrombie. Okay. The first book in that trilogy is called the uh, the Blade itself, I think. I've heard of that book. Oh yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's so well written, um, and it's uh, kind of a traditional fantasy plot structure. But he kind of uh, you know subverts it, turns it on its head, in part because this case kind of a sword and sorcery meets epic fantasy, uh, and it's very gritty with uh, some flawed characters and lots of violence, and but very very well written, uh, and it just shows how bad. Uh, war and politics and government and the, the desire to uh, to control people and everything is. Yeah. 
there's a lot of fodder in there for libertarians. Even if it's even the you know the author's not libertarian, I'm sure, and uh, it's not a overtly libertarian work, but it's something that libertarians would enjoy, I think. Yeah, and we, we probably should cover that book or you know, I uh, something like that in the future I've been episode. Think, yeah, I've been thinking about reading that book anyway, so maybe mm-hmm. I'll just pick that up and mm-hmm. get into that. Uh, it might be time to move on from the theme discussion now and into the book of the month segment. All right, take it away. Okay, the book that I want to recommend to our listeners uh, this month is, uh, and I mentioned it earlier in the in, earlier in the episode, is Coyote, a novel of interstellar exploration by Alan Steele. Alan Steele is a two-time Hugo Award-winning author of a novel called Chronospace, uh, and this book Coyote is the first in a in a kind of a loose series. It's kind of a episodic structure. Not as tight of a novel as you might be used to, because I believe it was published uh, as individual, you know, short fiction in the magazines, and then stitched together into a novel format. But I very much enjoyed it. The different perspectives, you know, from different characters you get in the different uh, stories in this book, kind of really help give you a broader view of this um, of this new world that they're living on. The premise of the story is that sometime in the future, I think, I think it's it's, uh, it's it's in the year twenty seventy. And there's this interstellar, the first interstellar, the first interstellar spacecraft has been built uh, and is uh, like soon to be launched. And the captain and crew of the, spa- uh, of the spaceship are kind of in cahoots with these political dissidents and decide to you know, hijack the ship and uh, take off uh, to their, you know, the new destination planet in another, in another solar system. Not with the crew that's handpicked for it, which are, you know, of course, as you would expect, uh, politically pro- privileged people but with uh, political dissident passengers so they can start a new life uh, on a, a new colony world on the frontier. That's a very libertarian element right there where you have these people who are quote-unquote stealing an interstellar ship that was built with taxpayer funds and uh, getting dissidents uh, kind of in a way, um, not seceding, but uh, you know, getting out of this um, you know, political hellhole on Earth in the United Republic of America. I guess it's, I think if I remember correctly, it's... Um, uh, the U.S. has kind of expanded to uh, include more uh, more than just what it has now. Maybe Canada, Mexico, I can't remember. It starts off with you know, them t- hijacking the ship and then part of their journey and then arriving on the uh, this new planet called Coyote. And then it goes through their early attempts at you know, surviving and colonizing it. I thought it was a very, you know, very interesting story and it gives you a, the different perspectives on it uh, from the different uh, kind of episodic uh, stories. You know, give you kind of a fuller picture of the world they live in and the and the the society they're building. It felt very rich to me, and uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Stephen Baxter says it's an homage to wonder, hope, and determination. Steele has constructed this glorious tale of a new star-flung Mayflower from the legacies of Heinlein, Twain, Hemingway, and others, and he has founded it on the essence of America. So I think uh, libertarians will enjoy this novel. It's available on Amazon and Audible.com, and if you Want to get this book for free as an audiobook? You can go to audibletrial.com/slash Prometheus Unbound and start a free 30-day trial membership and download the Coyote as a free audiobook. So uh, if you do so, you will not only get a free audiobook, but you'll be helping to support this podcast as we'll get a small commission for it. Okay, well, we've talked about things that have already been written, so let's 
talk a little about things yet to be written or things that the listeners might want to write themselves. This is today's Tomorrow's Writing Prompt, where we talk about a trend in society, uh, what it comes from, and speculate as to where it might be headed, and set up a little prompt so that the audience can write their own short story with that in mind. Uh, so because we interviewed Stefan Kinsella for the last podcast on intellectual property, we thought we'd take a look at that uh, and use that for our writing prompt for today's tomorrows. Uh, there's not a whole lot of stuff out there about intellectual property there. Jeffrey and I were uh, put our heads together and we came up with a few examples. I did a mm. review for Melancholy Elephants, a short story by Spider Robinson, and that's at the website. And then we read Inferio by Jack Vance uh, last summer or early fall. Uh, and that has to do with prohibitions on copying, uh, very related to intellectual property. And then, Jeffrey, you told me about the Golden Age Trilogy by John Wright. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> pun, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. John C. Wright uh, has the Golden Age Trilogy, published, I think, um, probably about a decade ago. The first uh, book in the trilogy is called The Golden Age, uh, in, you know, the title of the trilogy. And then after that are uh, The Phoenix Exultant and The Golden Transcendence. And this is set way, way in the future, uh, very far future uh, science fiction. Uh, people are pretty much immortal at this point. Uh, they can create artificial intelligence, and it gets to the point where you know, artificial intelligence, you know, they have to worry about you know, issues of rights for, for you know, intelligences that, that they create. Um, the IP angle for this story is not the focus of the, of the, of the story, but um, it is illustrated in it, and uh, to me at least, since I'm a, you know, an opponent of intellectual property, it highlights um, a potential problem for uh, copyright and patents, and uh, if you know people become long lived and uh, or even immortal, uh, imagine if you had um, imagine people patenting inventions or copywriting ideas, and they're going to live for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even forever. Yeah, and yeah, these and it, it especially becomes problematic when people you know patent some invention like because it ends up becoming important, like a very very fundamental you know aspect of uh of society or the economy you know, imagine how much power these kind of people would get as they accumulate wealth uh and and dependent uh and dependent people on them uh over the centuries and millennia and and then in john c Wright's uh you know tale there is a very it's it's a very stratified society there are some you know very 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 wealthy and powerful people you know, and those people are the ones who have very important uh intellectual property i think some of the main characters have some important patents especially uh, around like uh, power generation from the sun you know that sort of thing now have you read the trilogy oh, yes i have it's been a while though because the first book came out like about 10 years ago okay uh, i probably should reread it again sometime but it's, I, I liked it a lot you liked it and, okay. yeah and and john c Wright was at least kind of libertarian at the time when he wrote it as i think as i mentioned earlier he's more of a conservative catholic now yeah um uh but 
he at least was somewhat familiar with uh, you know libertarianism at the time and, and uh, sympathetic to it. Um, not as libertarian as we are, of course, but um, at least he's, he's uh, informed and sympathetic at the time when he wrote these books, and also knowledgeable about Ayn Rand. There's a bit of uh, it's kind of Randian um, you know, tone to the story. Okay, um, and so that yeah, you know, this. Uh, since, since IP is not really the focus of the story, that's actually something that somebody could explore in their own fiction. There's still a lot of room to explore there. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, can you say a little bit more about uh, you know, Inferio and Melancholy you know, yeah. Elephants? Inferio I enjoyed very much. It takes place in the far future where copying has been prohibited and is harshly punished. And it follows uh, a young boy who chafes in the society he's in. And he discovers the somewhat historical, somewhat fictional character of Inferio. It's not entirely certain how much is truth and how much is just myth-making. And Inferio captures his imagination because he took a stand uh, for self-determination and freedom. And he makes that his ideal. Uh, quite a libertarian story. I, I quite liked it. Uh, Melancholy Elephants is a short story, and I enjoyed it. Uh, not a whole lot to say about it. It's a short story, so you really don't need a preview, uh, but it, it deals with uh, intellectual property as well. So anyone who's interested in doing a little research on fiction and IP, intellectual property, those are some uh, resources to go to. Uh, like to talk a little bit about what intellectual property is. It's, uh, well, one, I would argue it's a nonsense term. You don't have intellectual property. Property is in physical objects. But intellectual property is based on the idea that you are, you own your thoughts and your, the creative bit you come up with. Uh, there's, there's a real problem with where to draw the line you can always take it to an extreme and make it look ridiculous uh, but proponents of ip will normally say they're against that but we just we just want the common sense stuff which i would argue doesn't exist but so you write a poem you compose a song <laughs> i think at one time didn't amazon try to uh claim intellectual property over one click shopping or something like that uh, yeah, a I think few so. years back. I mean, just yeah. that idea is is based on you got uh, copyrights, you got patents, and those are the two main ones that cause the most problem. You also have trademarks, which mm -hmm. I, well, to, go ahead to take a more to take a more recent example uh, that affects us. Actually, um, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a company that's claiming a patent on uh, podcasting. Oh God, and it. And they're they're going around now, you know, suing uh, some very prominent uh, podcasters who are actually making money on podcasting, like uh, Adam Carolla, and and uh, you know they could go after Leo Laporte, perhaps. I don't think they have yet, but yeah. you know, some some companies that are doing podcasting, so they're trying to shake them down for money. The problem uh, is, and, once yeah. you open the door, there's no, there's really no stopping point. I mean, things get mm -hmm. progressively more and more absurd. But yeah, you know, whoever built the first chair, do mm -hmm. we do we need to pay to? their estate i mean it, it can get that ridiculous but well, there's, there's no line you can draw well that is the idea of uh, some some people do take it that far like in uh, there's a, a quasi i don't know if he's a libertarian or not but galambos has this idea that he should be paying we should be paying like some money to like uh, uh, benjamin franklin for his inventions and things like that i don't know <laughs> just, it's, it's, it gets yeah, it's yeah 
copyright in perpetuity, patents in perpetuity. I mean, even with, even when they're not alive anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it's just nonsense. Uh, Should we pay the inventor of the wheel? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, where where does it stop? The hmm. the uh, one one big argument against it, I I think, is that property is something that's scarce. Scarce hmm. meaning there's not enough of it for everyone who wants it. So it has to be rationed. Uh, in a free market, we settle upon a system of property rights as a way of rationing it. And of course, the property rights help reduce the scarcity because people can sell things. And if they sell things, they're going to want to produce more of it. That's why we have so many cows and so few bald eagles, because no one made a good recipe for bald eagles. But cows can be property. Uh, they're in demand for what they can produce. And so we've got them all over the place. Mm -hmm. I'm sure some states have as many cows as they have humans. Uh, so it, yeah. property is a way of fighting scarcity. Well, an idea is not scarce. It's like the old saying, my friend and I exchanged a dollar and we each had an, uh, had a dollar. My friend and I exchanged an idea and we each had two ideas. They're not scarce. Mm -hmm. They're infinitely copyable. So what intellectual property seeks to do is to bring an artificial scarcity to something that is blessed with not having scarcity to begin with. I mean, it, it's insane. Yeah, it's a system of protectionism to uh, support you know, the creators or people who put effort into, um, you know, creating, you know, not creating, they don't, I mean, they create some kind of work that involves some pattern of information or they, they're the first person or the second person to discover some idea. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and this idea is to protect, um, them to give them an incentive to, uh, to put into that kind of effort and then so they can make money on it for a while, yeah. which is why people say, oh, we shouldn't, we'd make it, we shouldn't make it unlimited or, you know, uh, last forever. Mm -hmm. You just need to give them time to, to, um, you know, to make some money on their, on their effort. Which is um, unnecessary. Mm -hmm. You can make, mm -hmm. you can make money on your efforts otherwise. And let's right. remember, you're not entitled to an income either. If you can produce something that someone's willing to pay you mm -hmm. money for, great. But yeah. I, I mean, I certainly, heck, I'm an author myself. I want authors to be able to make money, but mm -hmm. I, I don't want monopolies, which is what intellectual property is. Yeah. I don't want monopolies and the, the stuff that goes along with it. And then yeah, people, at, at the end, oh, go it, ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. People just need to get creative and find new business models instead of relying upon yeah. a crutch. You know, uh, what I was going to say though is that I mean, for every for every um, you know, example of how you know, intellectual property uh, encourages somebody to innovate, you can find an example of some uh, of somebody that is discouraged from innovating or prevented from innovating. Well, and usually and the very same too. person. Yeah. Usually mm -hmm. the very same yeah. person. They may innovate mm -hmm. that first time, but then the intellectual property incentivizes them to sit on their innovation and sue a bunch right. of people instead of extending mm -hmm. it and coming up with something new. So and it prevents others from in innovating too. And, and um, yeah, ahead, it's ahead. argumentative that it even helps you innovate. I, I say it's argumentative that it even helps you innovate the first time, but even if it did, mm -hmm. it just makes things stagnate later. And then ultimately yeah. you can't have intellectual property and normal property rights at the same time in the same place. If I write a poem, and I'm now the intellectual proprietor of that poem, that means I have an easement on your paper and ink. What you My can computer, do. Your yeah. computer, mm -hmm. and not just yours, but everyone in the, on the planet. And, you know, rights being universal, I would have an easement on the property of creatures in civilizations and other galaxies that I don't even know exist. That's the <laughs> logical extension mm -hmm. of intellectual property. 
I mean, it, it's clearly nonsense. It's something that traditionally libertarians went along with uh, because it hadn't been given a real examination. And you also weren't seeing the same level of abuse with it. But in the last you know, 15, 20 years, whatever, however long it's been, that tide has really begun to turn. And I think the next gener generation of libertarians coming up, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of support for IP. It just doesn't right. make sense. You know, the rise of globalization and the compu computers and the internet, you know, computers and the internet are copying machines. I mean, you can't, that's, that's what's making uh, this issue kind of come to a head. Yeah. Uh, it's making, making things so you know, obviously absurd. And like when you, when you, uh, you know, download a, uh, a, an ebook or a music file, I mean, you're not, you're not uh, taking the file off the, off the server and deleting it and, 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 and taking, you know, keeping one, you know, that one file, you're, you're making a copy of it. You know, so it's, yeah. So it's, they're, almost everything you do on the computer and on the internet involves copying. So there's no way to get around and it. And that's the key word is copy, too. I think that's something libertarians should focus on is whenever someone talks about piracy and stealing, you can stop mm -hmm. them right there and say, copying. If I steal it, you no longer have it. If I copy it, there's just two versions of it now and I haven't mm -hmm. taken yours. And that's an important point. Uh, the other side abuses the language to make their point, which is a key indicator that they don't have a good one, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So if, if you are in a discussion with someone about intellectual property, make sure that the right terms are used because copying mm -hmm. is emotionally and logically very different from stealing. And I, I think that's a, it's a good way to carry on the argument. And it's, it's right there. And even in addition, you can even look at the dictionary and see the definitions and there's, there's not even any, any need to, uh, um, you know, make any kind of uh, elaborate arguments about it. Sure. Um, yeah, but uh, I think it's, we need to get back to the yeah, back the writing, to the writing prompt, prompt. Uh, issue. So there's the so how how do we how do we expect to see intellectual property enforcement evolve going forward? Well, that's that's an interesting question. We we talked with Stefan a little bit about that. Uh, the honest answer is I don't know. Uh, we have two basic trends that I see going on. We have the the top-down trend where the statists and the well-connected companies are trying to impose something from the top down. They're trying to impose and extend and deepen their intellectual property regime. And then you have the grassroots movement of all the rest of us, a little bit less organized, but there's a lot more mass to us than there is to them. So who knows how that's going to play out. But at the grassroots level, we have all of these new technologies which make copying and sharing easier than ever before, which is something I think artists should take advantage of and not try to fight. And the smart ones are mm -hmm. trying to take advantage of it. Uh, so what happens in the future? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Prediction is difficult. For today's, today's tomorrow's writing prompt, uh, we're going to try to focus on the uh, worst case scenario, right? And then focus on the resistance side uh, next month, right? Yeah, they say our worst fears and highest hopes are usually not realized. You get something in between, which I think is a good rule of thumb when you're ending a book. Uh, you don't want to make it too icky sweet or too tragic. You normally get something in the middle. But to start something out, I think science fiction, a lot of times, especially if it's dystopian, We'll take that worst case scenario angle and play with it. Uh, so I think that's a good place to start. So the worst case scenario with intellectual property, where do we go with wow. that uh, in comparison to the drug war? 
you talked about no-knock raids when we were talking earlier, how uh, we have to break down traditional civil rights because we're dealing with a victimless crime where you don't have a victim to come forward and denounce the perpetrator. So think you get things like no-knock raids because if you knock, they have a chance to flush the marijuana down the toilet. So to combat that, the police just burst right into your home. So you start seeing the erosion of civil liberties. And I think the same thing conceivably could happen with intellectual property. Uh, they're going to diminish your privacy. They're going to want to put controls on your internet usage. Uh, they're going to want to monitor what you're doing. They're going to try to centralize things. I think the same type of thing could happen with uh, resources and materials. If paper is used to copy uh, as a worst case scenario, which could be unlikely, but as a possibility for our story, uh, you could see controls on the fabrication of these materials like ink and paper or uh, CDs, things like that. You'll see controls and monitoring of the selling uh, and even the disposal of uh, as a way to strictly protect and to fight the grassroots effort against intellectual property. You could see uh, cartels of IEP owners forming. Uh, well, that's already, that's already yeah, happening. it's already happening, but that could be yeah. extended further to the point where they get more and more say-so about the distribution of resources. Right, so we'll see increased corporatism and kind of intellectual feudalism, I think, develop with more in, in wealth inequality. The mass is more dependent upon the people who actually have the IP. Mm -hmm. You could mm -hmm. see uh, as more and more materials are used for piracy, uh, as people try to work around, find loopholes around the regulations, you'll probably see more and more materials come under control. Uh, conceivably, you could see an entire economy fall under the sway of IP cartels. Now, again, I think that's a worst case scenario. I don't think things, I hope things aren't going to get that bad, but that does make kind of an interesting world. Uh, for a starting point for a science fiction story. Oh, and people might be uh, encouraged to snoop on each people other? People might, yeah. Snitch that's on each an, other? There's a good one. People might be encouraged. Uh, if you see something, say something. And then they ought to do that for other other topics, uh, other issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and that'll that'll definitely, uh, you know, create um, strife and, and conflict within society more than we already have. You know, people will be paranoid and, and turning each other in mm -hmm. and, you know, backstabbing each other. It's, it's, it's going to, further deteriorate our, our culture absolutely yeah so yeah you already see a little bit of that mm -hmm. that's that's been something that all totalitarian states have used getting mm -hmm. people to spy on people so i think that's an interesting world to make a story in whether it's a short story or a, a novel so after that we just need the starting point for the story and from there it's up to the listeners to write what they want so I picture a young boy or girl who's just heard a poem that he likes and going off of the fact that more and more materials are used for piracy and start to come under control. He's a fan of this poem. And so he takes the only way out that's still left to him. He traces the poem in the sand as a, as an act of defiance, as a way to have the poem handy for himself when he wants to see it. So he traces 
the poem in the sand. What happens to him from there? Is, does he get in trouble for that? Uh, is there a new control put on that? Uh, what happens? Get your pens out and start writing. All right. Uh, thanks for the writing prompt, Matthew. Uh, hopefully uh, our listeners will try to write something and maybe share it with us. Go to the forums and you can share it there in, the, in our forums for you know, writing groups uh, or email it to us. And now uh, up next, uh, we're going to have a look at the near, near future uh, with our fiction forecasts. We're going to look in uh, to, uh, well, a little bit of January since we're already missing that, but uh, also in the, in what's, what's coming up in February, what books, TV shows, and movies are we looking forward to or not looking forward to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, what, what's... Let's start with... Yeah, t- go ahead. Let's start with TV shows. All righty, go ahead. Uh, let's see. I just I just mentioned briefly some you know the, the different shows I've been watching, and then we'll focus on the ones that we're you know, really interested in. Want to talk about here? Um, let's see. I've been watching you know the new Sherlock Holmes like modern take on it called Elementary. Mm-hmm. I've been watching Arrow, which is based on a comic book, a DC comic book, and that's a you have a vigilante there fighting against you know corrupt corporate and you know government officials. Oh, I like that. I haven't heard about that show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, Lost Girl, which is kind of a uh, uh, urban fantasy. You know, the main character is a succubus, uh, but you know the Fae are divided between light and dark uh, forces, and she refuses to take sides. Oh. Uh, she wants to she wants to, be, she wants to be independent and be her own person. You know, and and another interesting interesting thing about that um, show is that the light uh, Fae are not portrayed as universally good. You know, they're you know, they're bad and different uh, way. Violent and oppressive, and in in, in, uh, in you know similar ways to the dark. They have slaves. They kill. They feed on and kill humans. Oh, that too. sounds very interesting. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been watching Castle, which has Nathan Fillion from Firefly in it. That's just a police procedural with a guy who uh, is a writer tagging along with. Um, he's a mystery writer tagging along with uh, with a with, with a cop. And uh, Once Upon a Time, which is a kind of a, a modern take on uh, you know fairy tales. Um, not really much in the way of libertarian, anything, anything libertarian about that though. And then, uh, I think it brings us to the ones we really want to talk about. You know, there's, there's a walking dead and, you know, the, the, no, we're both interested in talking about, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, also I've been watching a uh, person of interest, which is a TV show about, uh, an ex military, ex CIA, uh, guy who, you know, pretty much dropped out of uh, service to the government and, uh, was living as a derelict for a while. And he, He's found by this reclusive billionaire who has invented uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, he, this is a, this is one of the, this show and the other show I'm, I'm, I'm about to mention both uh, feature you know 9/11 prominently in their backstories. In this case, um, uh, the billionaire computer programmer uh, created this artificial intelligence for the government after 9/11 to help uh, predict uh, you know, terrorist attacks coming in the future. And it does a very good job of this, but it also happens to uh, have learned how to predict regular crimes as well. But the government's not interested in preventing regular crimes. They're only interested in preventing you know, terrorist attacks. Mm. So he decides to build in a back door to the artificial intelligence program to spit out the uh, social security numbers of people who are about to be involved in some kind of crime, <laughs> either as a victim or as a perpetrator. And um, he en- enlists the aid of this uh, ex-CIA military guy uh, to... You know, do surveillance and use his skills to either protect you know the victims or uh, apprehend the perpetrators before they can you know, commit their crime. Interesting. Uh, Similar themes with re- Minority Report. Yeah, indeed. Some of the interesting things from a libertarian perspective are the um, 
the police force is incredibly corrupt. There's this really, really corrupt, uh, large uh, organization within the police in this in this city. Uh, and they euphemistically call themselves HR for Human Resources. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they're in cahoots with the, you know, the major crime organizations in the city. You know, and and then after a while, uh, with a with a budding crime boss named Elias. And then um, there's also um, conflict with the CIA trying to hunt down you know the the um, you know the the action hero character, uh, his name is Reese. Uh, they're trying to hunt him down when they figure out he's alive. Um, and so that, you know, at the point where, where we are now in the season, uh, it looks like we're coming up to, with a major confrontation with the CIA. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Which season is this in? It is in season two. Um, we're about, um, how many episodes are we in? I'm not sure. About halfway through the second season, I think. The other show I wanted to mention and briefly talk about is uh, it's another one based on old fairy tales. It's called Beauty and the Beast. It's a modern take on it. It's also an, a show that features 9-11 in the, in the backstory. The two main characters are a young police detective named Catherine Chandler, played by Kristen Krupp from Smallville. And I think she's also in Earthsea, you know, that, that miniseries by Sci-Fi. And the other main character is a, a physician who, after 9-11... Uh, he's angry. I forget what what, what what he was angry about. I guess somebody he knew had died in the in the towers or something. But he go he decides to enlist in the military to go you know fight for his country and whatnot. And he gets enlisted in this into this um, special unit that is engaging in um, you know genetic experiments to create super soldiers. And the experiment doesn't go too well. There's some side effects, so they decide to kill off all the uh, all the soldiers who are who they're experimenting on, and everybody else who was involved in the program below a certain level of, you know, privilege. And uh, somehow he manages to escape, you know, being killed, and he's living underground for 10 years. And he uh, witnesses um, Kristen Kruk's mother being killed and, and, and saves her life. And then years later, Kristen Kruk's gone through law school and become a detective. Her character's become a detective. And so they, you know, they get back, they, they meet again and develop a friendship and then more, you know. And I guess that since it's a CW, there's kind of a back and forth, you know, on again, off again, kind of relationship <laughs> thing, yeah. But, but I think they do a fairly clever job of, uh, you know, you know, having good excuses for why they, you know, they keep, you know, coming together and then and then and then and then trying to push each other away. That's yeah. so not it's not it's not too cheesy, you know. But I, I have to admit that one of the main reasons why I like watching the show is Kristen Kruk. She is uh, pretty hot. Pretty easy on the eyes. But, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, but uh, there there is that it's an interesting um, premise. Yeah, that that element with the uh, you know the. The military unit, uh, you know, with, this, with the genetic uh, experiments and, the, and killing off their soldiers, that, that's you know, that's still playing out through the show where they're they've realized that this guy's still alive and they're looking for mm-hmm. him and they want to they want to get him back, probably to try to make him disappear. So there, there's going to be more conflict with the government coming okay. up. Uh, although the police are still uh, you know presented as very you know uh, up and up and you know you know non corrupt and you know do gooders and yeah. everything, so they, they don't do anything <laughs> wrong. But uh, at least, the, uh, at least it's a shadowy military organization. That's um, you know, this something you know. for the libertarian to latch on to. Right, right. Okay, so that's I think that's pretty much it in the uh, TV department. Uh, other than the one we really both want to talk about, uh, we're really looking forward to Walking yeah, Dead. Yes, uh, movie and, department. Uh, movie department. There's a bunch of stuff I don't even know what most of it is. Yeah. Uh, Tangel see. and Gretel Witch Hunters, which said. Continues yeah. the trend That's of making, uh, yeah, they came out this month making uh, old fairy tales more badass. 
more more matrixy. <laughs> It does have that guy from um, Jeremy Renner, Joss Whedon's uh, Avengers. Yeah, Jeremy yeah. Renner and who's uh, oh, no one else of no. Right? He's also born now, isn't he? He's the well. He's uh, oh. he was in that series. He doesn't or play like, the character. It's a different yeah. character. Okay, I haven't seen that. There's a few other ones I don't really I never heard of, and I'm not really looking forward to watching. All superheroes must die. Some some horror stuff. I was looking forward to Gangster oh, no. Squad when I first heard about it, but. The trailers made me a little iffy, and then uh, hasn't gotten really good reviews, so that's a little disappointing. Okay, and coming up in February is Warm Bodies. Warm Bodies, which I'm keen to talk about. More zombie stuff. Okay. There's some kind of uh, martial arts flick from China, I think, called The Sorcerer and the White Snake. There's something called Side Effects. I think it has to do with um, some drug or something. I don't know. Didn't really catch my interest. Yeah. Um, and beautiful creatures, Escape from Planet Earth. That's a Escape from Planet Earth is some kind of cartoon for kids. Um, it's not like anything like Escape from L.A. or anything like that. <laughs> no so. snake listing. <laughs> no, unfortunately, uh, I have no idea if it's going to be you know libertarian or just fun. I don't know. Dark Skies, which is some kind of weird uh, urban fantasy thing, I think. And a good day to die good hard. Day to die hard. I'll be talking about that in a minute. Yeah, another Die Hard movie. Because yep. four wasn't. And enough. for books, yeah, for books we have a bunch of some stuff from authors I've heard of, but I haven't really, I haven't actually read anything by any of these authors, but I've heard of some of their names. So we have Neil Asher's uh, The Departure, and that's uh, part of a trilogy. I think it's already been published before, but it's uh, being republished by Nightshade Books. Uh, ben Boba. Far Side. Read a couple Ben Boba books a while ago. I'll be talking about Far Side. Mm-hmm with my prediction in a little bit. Okay, and they got Peter V. Brett, The Daylight War, which is a sequel to, um, I think uh, the book is called The Warded Man in the U.S. It's either the second or third book in that trilogy, but I haven't read it. Uh, I have a book on my shelf that I need to get to sometime. Marie Brennan, A Natural History of Dragons, which is kind of a, uh, kind of an enlightenment, uh, you know, alternate history type story, I think, with, um, with you know, a little fantasy element, The Dragons. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's this character, this, this you know, woman who's, you know, who is a, a scientist bucking the um, sexist you know, you know, oppression of her time mm-hmm. and, and putting out uh, um, this really um, like detailed um, book about dragons, you know, scientific uh, analysis of them. And we have uh, Mike Cole. He's an ex-military current uh, part-time Coast Guard guy, I think. He's written, uh, he's writing a military fantasy series, which you don't see very often. And this is the second book in the series coming out in February called Shadow Ops Fortress Frontier. Now that's interesting. It's a uh, fantasy series, but it's called Shadow Ops. That's a strange yeah, it's, mixture. It's it's a modern fantasy okay. where magic comes back. Ah. Uh, so and, and basically it's kind of like uh, X-Men mutants kind of scenario where you know, sometimes the government would crack down on mutants and try to round them up and register them and that kind of thing and hunt them down. Or the same thing's happening here with with uh, you know magic users, and there's a government organization that hunts down magic users and regulates them. And the main character, you know, and that sounds like it might be you know ugh, I don't know if I want to read that. It might be you know, you know something that you know too unlibertarian to stomach. But uh, the thing that makes it something that I might want to read is that the main character is a soldier who's uh, I think it's, it's part, part of his job is to do that. But it turns out that he's got he, he develops some magical ability. And to make matters worse, it's on the prohibited list. He has, his, he has some powers that are on the prohibited list. Mm. 
So he gets, he's he's in trouble and on the run now. I think is is what happens. Okay. So I'm, I might be I might actually you know look that uh, that series up and read it sometime. And we have um, Elizabeth Cooper Trinity Rising. I don't know much about that. Um, we have Karen Lord, The Best of All Possible Worlds, which is a sci-fi story about uh, I think people from two different races or something, you know, and you know falling in love. I don't know. But it's a, there's there's potential for um, you know dealing with issues of individualism and racism and stuff like that in there. Um, Evie Manieri has a book called Blood's Pride coming out. Blood's Pride coming out in February. It's a medieval Mediterranean medieval Mediterranean epic fantasy with mercenaries and revolutions. That might be interesting for libertarians Definitely, to check out. Depending on how the revolution turns out, mm-hmm. that'd be interesting to see. Yeah. Well, it looks like the, the some city was conquered a while back, and now they're trying to. There's a resistance movement brewing, and they're going to they're trying to rebel or something. Mm. Melanie Ron Elsewins. Uh, that's something about where there's one co- uh, kingdom that had that accepts magic, and uh, the rest of the world pretty much doesn't. Uh, something. I there. read some Melanie uh, Ron stuff in my youth and enjoyed it. It's been a been a while since I've read any of her stuff. And the last one I want to mention is. Uh, a book by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. It's called Necessity's Child. It's been being published by Bain. So you, if you're a fan of Bain's books, you know, that kind of you know science fiction adventure, that kind of thing, you might like this series. It is book 16 in a long series of SF adventure, uh, but I'm not sure if it's necessary to start at the beginning. Probably isn't. I haven't read any of these books, but what interests me about this series is that it, instead of being about some galactic empire or you know something like that. It's actually about a clan of interstellar traders. So for once, we actually get to see you know, a story from the point of view of a businessman, I think, or a businesswoman. You know, so that might be uh, something interesting you know, that I want to take out sometime, and other libertarians might want to as well. Yeah. Get rid of the, some of the politics and you know, focus on some business. Okay, yeah. so that's the list. Let's go back and talk about the interesting ones have, that really caught our attention. That's what we have to look forward to in February. Now... Jeffrey and I have a crystal ball we can look into, and we can actually tell you how things are going to turn out before they open. Econostrology for science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> right. Guaranteed to be 100% accurate. So, Far Side by Ben Bova, my fiction forecast. Ben Bova's latest opus has as a backdrop a discovery made by a team of astronomers working on the far side of the moon while the characters are immersed in a roiling pot of love, revenge, politics, and murder. Ben Bova reliably combines novel plot twists based on a decent understanding of science with a tenure for dialogue and characters who are either flat or caricatures. Hmm. In other words, a science fiction writer par excellence. I'm guessing the book is going to be a page-turner, but will fall short in certain categories and leave the reader less than fully satisfied. All right, Jeffrey, what's your first forecast? Okay, um, well, we have Neil Asher's uh, The Departure, which is part of his owner, I think, an owner trilogy, the owner trilogy. Uh, as I said, it's being republished, it seems. But it's set in a future Earth uh, that's overpopulated. It's under the brutal thumb of some high-tech uh, committee. It, kind of, it, it seems to have shades of the uh, European Commission or something. They basically rule uh, over you know, a bunch of, you know, the masses of, of you know, poor people on Earth uh, from some, I think, uh, some space station. And they have plans to reduce the population of the Earth uh, with some orbiting laser, uh, you know, orbiting laser um, installations. Mm-hmm. So they can uh, reduce the human population and 
uh, stabilize the earth. Yay, environmentalism. <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a couple of characters. Uh, I, think, I think it's supposed to alternate back and forth between two uh, main characters' viewpoints. One of them is somebody who's named Janice, who uh, seems to have an amnesia, but he, know, he does know he's been tortured, and he wakes up uh, in a crate uh, destined for the incinerator, and he has some kind of rogue AI inhabiting forbidden hardware in his skull. Hmm. So um, he uh, apparently uh, becomes intent upon uh, getting his revenge on the committee. Like I said, it is uh, it does appear to already have been published. So there are reviews on some older editions of the book. One of the reviewers was actually kind of critical of it because he thinks it's too right wing, uh-huh. criticizing the left wing of Europe or something. So um, there might be something there that's interesting to uh, libertarians. But the reviewer kind of worries me that it might be too uh, you know that right wing conservative rather than right wing libertarian. Yeah. So uh, that worries me, and also I'm not sure if that's really an accurate interpretation of the book, or if it ends up being, you know, more left wing. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, but it does seem to have a nice dystopian uh, setting and some resistance to that. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting premise yep. to me. Okay, The Walking Dead, my fiction forecast. Is there anything more gripping than a zombie apocalypse? Whether it's virus-infected humans, as we tend to see recently, or the traditional decaying corpses animated without explanation, I love a zombie apocalypse. In fact, I don't know whether or not any movie couldn't be improved by adding zombies marauding around the world. Terminator 2? Sure, add some zombies. Raiders of the Lost Ark? Of course. Braveheart? Oh hell yeah. You think fighting for independence from the English is tough? Try doing it when you have to kill them all twice. Fetch me a gaggle of former humans with rotting flesh and set them shuffling around a beleaguered neighborhood and you'll have my attention for as long as you want it. Make the zombies run instead of shuffle and it's an added bonus. The Walking Dead is as good a zombie tale as any I've seen and stands as uncontested ruler in the zombies on TV category. There were worrying trends in season two, but these seem to have been corrected and the show is lumbering forward nicely. I expect we will finish season three quite pleased. The only thing I'm wondering is whether a black man can survive the introduction of another black male character or whether such an introduction (laughs) necessitates the first black man's demise so as not to exceed the quota of one per show. That's racist. (laughs) It is racist. (laughs) 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 The Walking Dead has introduced three black male characters now. And as Mm -hmm. soon as the next one is introduced, the first one dies within an episode or two. it's a little silly. Oh, yeah. It's a little silly. I got to be honest. <laughs> yeah, people people are pointing out the the uh, possible racism in that uh, the first time it happened. Yeah, yeah when the first when the first token uh, <laughs> black character died and it was replaced immediately by well, they were finally <laughs> kind of delving into as an actual character and then decided. Oh yeah. right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the people complain about the the first black character. And, uh, he didn't get any lines. He was just there, you know, in the background. Yeah. Finally, it starts getting interesting, saying some interesting things, doing finding a purpose in the in the group that we can at least that we could see. And oh, damn, he's dead. dead. <laughs> but we have a black prisoner, and then mm. oh no, mm. he's dead because we just saw another one slip into the prison. So mm. we shall see. I'm with you on uh, season two being you know too slow and drawn out, and boring, you know, boring, yeah. in the, and at the, the farm. And I thought there. characters started also, acting a little silly too, just to drive the plot. I didn't care yeah. for, but season three's picked up. Yeah, Lori, the uh, Yoko Ono of the group, was really starting to annoy me. I'm kind of glad she's dead now. But <laughs> well, it's a little too bad that her son had to, had to be the one to finish yeah. her off. But uh, hope, hopefully, uh, this, these aren't spoilers for anybody. But yeah. uh, 
I am definitely, you know, season three really, you know, took off with a bang. It's just kept on going and stronger and stronger. So I'm looking forward to the rest of it. And I think we're looking forward to a confrontation between the governor's uh, town and our uh, main characters at the yeah, prison, the right? the main confrontation. We've been skirmishing mm-hmm. for a little bit. So, uh, yes, definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, and there's some interesting uh, moral dilemmas in there for libertarians, you know, about uh, when you're in such dire straits with uh, limited resources and, you know, zombies all around you and, you know, you, you, it's so easy to to uh, die. Uh, you know, there's so many ways to die. Uh, the people, you know, start taking some extreme measures and, you know, there's some questionable actions taken you know, throughout the series that are good fodder for discussion. Absolutely. A lot of lifeboat ethics and things like that. Although I do have to say, mm-hmm. I think the show is a little pessimistic. Uh, I I would see a zombie apocalypse as a unifying force for living humans, and yet it seems to have driven us apart from each other. Uh, that's uh, more interesting, yeah. right? <laughs> for storytelling. <laughs> and that's that's one of our one of our friends had that complaint. It didn't make sense to him that people would all just turn on each other like that instead of uh, banding yeah. together. If 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 small groups could band together like uh, like our you know, our main you know, group that we follow. And other groups that we see throughout the series and other stories can band together. Why can't larger groups? Why do they always have to sure. fight? And, you know, stab each other in the back and kill I would each see other this, with roving, roving bandits. Yeah, I would yeah. see the splintering happen after they finally got rid of the zombies and then had to divvy up the the rest of what's left. That's when I think yeah, you see we, things start to fracture. But and the enemy of my enemy is yeah. my friend, right? So the zombies are the big threat yeah. right now. So let's band together and At protect least ourselves. Now we go from the. Uh, the horrific zombies to the sparkly ones yeah, with warm bodies. <laughs> the movie called War- Yeah, the movie called Warm Bodies. So my fiction forecast for warm bodies. You had me at zombie apocalypse. And while fleeing terrified from the undead horde never grows old, there is certainly nothing wrong with putting a twist on it. In this tale, a zombie boy rediscovers his humanity and starts making choices, including the choice to defend still living humans from his fellow ghouls. I think it sounds like a fine idea. And though many a fine idea has been ruined with shoddy execution, this one will, I think, turn out kind of fun, though probably not spectacular. Worth a trip to the cinema, anyway. Yeah, the trailer did interest me. It did. It was kind of funny and interesting. Uh, yeah, my only worry with the Warm Bodies movie is it seems to, we've already had the, uh, the sparkly, <laughs> sparkly vampires, uh, starting maybe with um, Anne Rice and getting you know worse but and worse. But have we had enough Twilight of sparkly series. vampires? <laughs> we need, I guess we need sparkly zombies now, but this new movie, I mean, it looks interesting. It might be fun, but I'm hoping it's not going to start a new trend, those sparkly zombies. <laughs> zombies still need to be scary. Mm, yes. Indeed. And do you prefer shuffling zombies purpose. or running zombies, or do you not care? Uh, I, guess I, I guess I have to say I don't, don't care. care. I mean, you can have um, two different kinds of stories, depending on which one you use, yeah. right? So it... It depends on the story, I suppose, whether they, you know, just use the one that fits for the kind of story you sure. want to tell. I like the running mm-hmm. zombies just because I think it's scarier. And the, yeah. the, my one complaint with The Walking Dead is I, I've never completely believed that these zombies would take over the world. They're too, too slow. slow, too easy to kill. I mean, in the first season, they showed that how they got into that tank and messed up the army and i just don't see that happening for one thing a zombie apocalypse mm. would never occur in the south because everyone's got a gun and so you know fire a couple <laughs> if everyone fires a couple shots the apocalypse is over now england they're in trouble 
or maybe really densely packed places like New York and pockets. Beijing. But and, the stuff is fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that leaves us, I think, with one more movie. Uh, a Good Day to a Die Hard. A Good Day to Die Hard, my fiction forecast. What is it about the fifth movie of a franchise? It brings a certain je ne sais quoi to the series. Actually, I do say quoi. It usually brings a bucket load of crap. Take an idea that was hot a quarter century ago, remove the only director who's made good movies in the series, and what do you get? Probably about what we got the last time. More action, less plot and character development. More CGI, fewer stunts. More explosions, fewer foils to set them off. I'm stingy handing out stars to movies, and this one doesn't figure to receive too many. Of course, if it has a zombie apocalypse, all bets are off. Oh, yeah, you're notorious about being stingy <laughs> with stars. <laughs> Especially got with movies. Got um, <laughs> okay, so... I think that's about it. Uh, and you make me look, uh, you make me look lazy with your well thought out, uh, well, forecast there. if you want to, if you want to <laughs> write some stuff out and, and just record it and intersplice it. No, that's okay. I just, I just, you know, making some, you know, making a joke at the end oh. for, for fun. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, that's all for episode two, Jeffrey. So, Matthew, do you, think, do you think we covered everything? Uh, it's kind of a long episode this time around, but uh, I get the feeling we didn't really cover everything we should have. Honestly, it was a long episode. I felt like we could have gone five hours. There's a lot of stuff yeah. out there. We'll have to can of worms a bunch of the topics that we covered. Uh, Heinlein, Ayn Rand, uh, um, libertarian, the quality of libertarian writing, all kinds of stuff. We can do more episodes on those, I suppose. Bring it back at a later date. Plenty of fodder for more episodes. All right, so it's time to wrap things up. You can find out more about the podcast at prometheus-unbound.org slash podcast. And you can find the show notes for this episode at prometheus-unbound.org slash pup002. You'll start to see a trend there. You can find any episode by going to our website URL slash pup and the three-digit number. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast-only RSS feed for this show at prometheus-unbound.org slash podcast feed. And on our website, you can find links to our Twitter, Google Plus, and Facebook pages. And also sign up to receive free email updates in your inbox. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us feedback. You can send us voicemail feedback by calling 225-257-9596 or using the Google Voice widget on the website. Or you can email us at feedback at prometheus-unbound.org. Is there anything we left out? What did you think? Were we completely wrong or completely right or something in between? This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash Prometheus Unbound to sign up for a free 30-day trial membership. By doing so, you'll be helping to support this podcast and you can download a free audio book. This month, we recommend Coyote by Alan Steele.